John chapter 11, verse 38 through chapter 12, verse 11, verses 38 through 44. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Burkett notes, in these verses, we find our Savior addressing himself to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave. First, he commands them to take away the stone. But could not that voice which had raised the dead remove the stone? Yes, no doubt. But it is always the will of Christ that we put forth our utmost endeavors and do what we can in order to our own deliverance. To remove the stone and untie the napkin was in their power. This, therefore, they must do but to raise the dead was out of their power. This, therefore, will Christ do alone. Our hands must do the utmost before Christ will put forth his help. The stone being thus removed, his eyes begin. They are lifted up to heaven, his Father's throne, from whence he expects to derive his power. His tongue seconds his eyes, and he prays unto his Father. Christ, as God, wrought the miracle by his own power. Consider him as mediator, and so he looks up to his Father by prayer. Yet we hear of no prayer, but a thanksgiving only. Christ's will was his prayer. Whatever Christ willed, God granted. Christ and his Father having one essence, one nature, and one will. Neither was it fit for Christ to pray vocally and audibly, lest the unbelieving Jews should say, He did it by entreaty, nothing by power. Observe farther, that as Christ, when he spake to his Father, lifted up his eyes, so when he spake to dead Lazarus, he lifted up his voice and cried aloud. This Christ did, that the strength of the voice might answer the strength of the affection, since we vehemently utter what we earnestly desire. Also, that the greatness of the voice might answer to the greatness of the work, but especially that the hearers might be witnesses, that this mighty work was performed. Not that this mighty work was performed not by any magical enchantments, which are commonly mumbled forth with a low voice, but by an authoritative and divine command. In a word, might not Christ utter a loud voice at the raising of Lazarus, that it might be a representation of that shrill and loud voice of the last trumpet at the general resurrection, which shall sound into all graves and raise all flesh from their bed of dust. Observe next, as the manner of our Lord speaking with a loud voice, so the word spoken by him, Lazarus, come forth. Mark Christ doth not say, Lazarus, revive, but as if he supposed him already alive, he says, Lazarus, come forth, to let us know that they are alive to him who are dead to us. Mark also what a commanding word this was, come forth. Not that it was in the power of these loud commanding words to raise Lazarus, but in the quickening power of Christ which attended these words. O blessed Savior, 
It is thy voice which we shall ere long hear sounding in the bottom of the grave and raising us up from our bed of dust. It is thy voice that shall pierce the rocks, divide the mountains, and echo forth throughout the universe, saying, Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. Observe lastly how readily obedient Lazarus was to the call and command of Christ. He that was dead came forth. And if Lazarus did thus instantly start up at the voice of Christ in the day of his humiliation, how shall the dead be rousted up out of their graves by that voice which shall shake the powers of heaven and move the foundations of the earth in the day of his glorification? Question. But where was Lazarus' soul all the time that he was dead? If in heaven, was it not wrong to him to come from thence? If not, doth it not prove that the soul sleeps as well as the body? Answer, souls go not to heaven by necessitation, as the fire naturally and necessarily ascends upward, but are disposed by God as the supreme governor. Those that have served him go to heaven, and those that have served the devil go to hell. And those that are not yet judged to either place, but are to live presently again upon earth, as Lazarus was, are reserved by God accordingly, whether shut up in the body as in a swoon, or whether kept in the custody and hands of an angel not far from the body, awaiting his pleasure, either to restore it to the body or return it to its proper place of bliss or misery, the scripture has not told us whither, and it would be too great curiosity to inquire, and greater presumption to determine. Verses 45-48 through Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisee and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisee a council, and said, What do we do? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The different effects which this miracle had upon these Jews who were present at the raising of Lazarus. Some of them believed on Christ, but others, persisting in their unbelief, went to the Pharisee and informed against him, notwithstanding all the evidence which our Savior gave of his being the Messiah by the miracles which he wrought. Yet many rejected him and refused to believe on him to their unutterable and inevitable condemnation. Observe, too, how greatly disturbed the Pharisees were upon the account of our Savior's miracles. Knowing how proper an argument they were to convince men, they concluded, that if Christ were suffered to go on and work miracles, he would draw all men after him. Learn thence that Jesus proved himself to be the true Messiah by the miracles which he wrought, his enemies themselves being judges. For we find here the worst of our Savior's enemies were afraid of his miracles, that by them he would draw all men after him. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. Observe 3. What was the ground of the Pharisees' fear if they let Christ go on to work miracles, that he would have so many followers as would alarm the Romans and awaken their jealousy and cause them to come upon them with an army, to deprive them of the little liberty they indulge them, and take away their place and nation, their place, that is, their place of worship, the temple, and their nation, that is, bring the whole body of the Jewish nation to utter destruction." Learn hence how all the enemies and opposers of Christ and his kingdom do endeavor to color their quarrel with some specious pretenses, that they may hide the odiousness of their practices from the eye of the world and may not be openly seen to fight against God. Thus the Pharisee here persecute our Savior, 
not as the Messiah, though the miracles he wrought were sufficient evidence that he was such, but as one who would bring ruin upon their nation. If we let him alone, the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Verses 49 through 52. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and the whole nation perish not. And this he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for the nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Burkett notes, The foregoing verses acquainted us with the apprehension which the chief priests had of the necessity of taking away the life of our blessed Savior, lest the Romans should take away both their place and nation. Now here, in these verses, Caiaphas, the high priest, delivers his opinion for preventing of this danger. He tells the rest that they ought not to boggle at the matter, but come to a positive and preemptory resolution to provide for the public safety, right or wrong, and that it is a great folly to prefer one man's life, though never so innocent, before a nation's welfare. A most wicked and devilish speech. As a judge, he regarded not what was lawful, but as a wicked politician, he consulted what was expedient. He declares that one man, though never so good and holy, though never so just and innocent, had better die than a whole nation suffer. Whereas it is in any case unlawful to do evil that good may come. Learn hence that although it be the duty of all persons to pray for and endeavor after the public welfare of a church and nation, whereof they are members, Yet it is altogether unlawful to promote the greatest national good by wicked and unlawful means. Observe farther how God overrules the tongue of Caiaphas beyond his own intention, prophetically to foretell that great good which by our Savior's death redound to the world, and that the fruit and benefit of his death should not only extend to the Jews, but the Gentiles also, and that he should gather in one body or church all that truly believe in him though far and wide dispersed upon the face of the earth. Hence learn, four, that the spirit of prophecy did fall sometimes upon very bad men, and God has been pleased to reveal some part of his mind to the worst of men. Thus Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar had in their dreams a revelation from God, what things he intended to do. Learn, too, that it is consistent with the holiness of God sometimes to make use of the tongues of the worst of men to publish and declare his will. Caiaphas here, though a vile and wicked man, was influenced by God to prophecy and speak as an oracle. Almighty God may, when he pleases, employ wicked men in this way, without any prejudice to his holiness. This Caiaphas spake not of himself, but, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Verses 53 through 57. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, 
should show it, that they might take him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how baneful and destructive evil counsel is, especially out of the mouths of leading men, and how soon embraced and followed. Caiaphas no sooner propounds the putting of Christ to death, but from that day forward they lie in wait to take him. The high priests had satisfied their consciences, and now they made all possible speed to put their malicious designs and purposes in execution. Observe, too, the prudential care and means which our Lord used for his own preservation to avoid their fury. He withdraws himself privately into a place called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Learn, as Christ himself fled, so it is lawful for his servants to flee when their life is conspired against by their bloody enemies and the persecution is so personal. Observe 3. When the time was come that he was to expose himself, when the time of the Passover drew near, in which he, being the true Paschal Lamb, was to be slain, to put an end to that type, he withdrew no more, but surrenders himself to the rage and fury of his enemies, and dies a shameful death for shameless sinners, as the next chapter more at large informs us. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Burkett notes, The latter ending of the foregoing chapter acquainted us with the prudential care of Christ in withdrawing from the fury of his enemies in and about Jerusalem, who were consulting his destruction. His time not being fully come, he gets out of the way of his persecutors. But now, the Passover being at hand, which was the time that this Lamb of God was to die as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, our Lord comes forth first to Bethany, and then to Jerusalem, not fearing the teeth of his enemies, but with a fixed resolution to encounter death and danger for the salvation of his people. His example teacheth us that although we are bound by all lawful means and prudential methods to preserve ourselves from the unjust violence of our persecutors, Yet when God's time for our suffering has come, and we evidently see that it is His will that we suffer for His sake, we ought to set our faces up very cheerfully towards it, and resign up ourselves to the wisdom and will of God. Thus did Christ here, chapter 11, 54. We find He withdraws from suffering, His hour not being then come. But now, when the Passover was nigh at hand, which was the time when he was to suffer, he sets his face towards Jerusalem and withdraws no more. Verses 2-8 through eight. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Burkett notes, In these verses, an account is given of our Savior's entertainment at Bethany after he had raised Lazarus. A supper is made for him, at which Martha served, and Lazarus sat with him. But Mary anoints Christ with precious ointment. 
where note one, the action which this holy woman performed. She pours a box of precious ointment upon our Savior's head as he sat at meat, according to the custom of the Eastern countries at their feasts. I do not find that any of the apostles worth this much charge and cost to put honor upon our Savior as this poor woman was. From whence we learn, one, that where strong love prevails in the heart, nothing is adjudged too dear for Christ, neither will it suffer itself to be outshined by any examples. The weakest woman that strongly loves her Savior will vie with the greatest apostle and piously strive to express the fervor of her affections towards him. Observe, too, how this action was resented and reflected upon by murmuring Judas, who valued this ointment at three hundred pence, and grudged the bestowing of it upon Christ. He accused this holy woman of needless prodigality. Lord, how doth a covetous heart think everything too good for thee? He that sees a pious action performed, and seeks to lessen or undervalue it, shows himself possessed with a spirit of envy. Judas's invidious spirit makes him censure an action which Christ highly approved. Hence learn that men who know not our hearts may through ignorance and prejudice censure and condemn those actions which God doth commend and will graciously reward. Happy was it for this poor woman that she had a more righteous judge to pass sentence upon her action than wicked Judas. Observe 3. How readily our holy Lord vindicates this poor woman. She says nothing for herself, nor need she, having an advocate who gives the reason for her action. She did it for my burial. As kings and great persons were wont in those eastern countries at their funerals to be embalmed with odors and sweet perfumes, so, saith our Savior, this woman, to declare her faith in me as her king and lord, doth with this box of ointment, as it were beforehand, embalm my body for its burial. True faith will put honor upon a crucified as well as a glorified Savior. This holy woman accounts Christ worthy of all honor in his death, believing that he would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto God and a savor of life unto his people. Verse 9 Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Burkett notes, Observe here, it was not zeal but curiosity which brought these persons at this time to Christ. They had an itching desire to see Lazarus, to inquire after the truth of his death, and possibly after the state of the dead, and the condition that separate souls are in after death. Thus the miracles of Christ drew many followers after his person, who were never converted by his doctrine. It was the sin of many, when Christ was here upon earth, that they flocked after him rather out of curiosity than out of conscience, and chose rather to gaze upon his works than to fall in love with the worker. The multitude here came to Bethany not for Christ's sakes only, but that they might see Lazarus also. Verses 10 and 11. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the unreasonableness of that range and madness which was found in the chief priests against Lazarus. They consulted together how they might put Lazarus to death. But supposing that Christ had spoken blasphemy in making himself equal with God, or supposing that he had broken the Sabbath by curing the man that was born blind on that day, yet what had Lazarus done that he might be put to death? 
But from hence we learn that such as have received special mercy and favor from Christ, or are made the instruments of his glory, must expect to be the mark and the butt of malicious enemies. Christ had highly honored Lazarus by raising him from the grave, and here there is a resolution against his life whom Christ had thus highly honored. The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Observe, too, the cause why the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus to death, namely, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. That is, many of the Jews, seeing the miracle of Christ raising Lazarus from the grave, were drawn thereby to believe in Jesus Christ. And this so enraged the chief priests against Lazarus that they sought to put him to death. Learn hence that nothing so enrages the enemies of Christ as the enlargement of his kingdom and the sight of the number of believers daily increasing. This provokes the devil's wrath and his servant's rage.